If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how. Hello and welcome. It's another Books of the Year podcast from your friends here. One friend is Matthew Williams. Yes, hello. Is the, the heating on yet? The heating is now oh, on. I'm so... Oh, my wife is so happy. Uh, heating's blasting out of the radiators. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, so we, we managed to hang on, as all reasonable, right-thinking people do, until the clocks went back. Rubbish. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, And now the house is nice and warm. Yeah, you could just have put it on about a week ago. No, uh, I was walking around wearing my thermals and a jumper, which is normal for people in uh, late October. Well, you are an idiot, <coughs> in my opinion. But have you had a good week? Yes, I've had a, I've had a good week. How's your week been? It's been, it's been interesting, stuff <laughs> really? going on. Yeah. Here yeah. and there. Very quiet, yeah. Yeah, mm. nothing really to report. Marcus Zuzak and Anthony Horowitz uh, are our writers this week. You'll hear the Q&A from them in just a few moments' time. Then in a few days' time, you'll hear the main conversation with them about their books, Bridge of Clay, and the sentence is death. Uh, some reaction and stuff. Thanks for getting in touch. You can tweet us at Books of the Year and you can email uh, Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Yahoo. Newly 50, which is obviously not a proper name. Uh, two jumpers, two coats, two pairs of socks. I hope Matt says yes to the heating. I'm freezing in the evening. Well, it is yes to the heating now because obviously we have passed the crucial point. So, uh, yes. Peter Gedge, let's hear it for the boy. boy. Love the heating, heating. There you go. has been on for a couple of weeks, just north of Aberdeen, says Peter. And I noticed Paula has tweeted to say, I have Economy 7. So everyone laughing at and me for saying, could, yes, well, the heating's on, but that she has Economy 7, which I thought was some throwback to the 80s. Uh, in other news, we've added uh, a 1,000 Twitter followers in the last week. Yeah, I wonder why. Well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my Twitter account has was has gone up by yeah. a whole bunch of people. Yes, yeah, mine took a little bit of a boost as well. I wonder what? why that is. Has that, yes, <laughs> has that been? Why do you think? That... I well, I'm going to guess. Quite a lot of people are expecting a little bit of news from Simon Mayo. That's what I'm. Are they? That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see. Is there any? Is there anything you can break for us now? Exclusively? Well, there was. Well, last week there was stuff, but this week there isn't anything. Oh, really? Well, don't tell people that because I'll just they they won't follow you. So. Oh yeah. Say, oh yeah. No, no, no. There's something coming. Um, Susan Taylor. Now Simon is doing so many projects. Will the Books of the Year podcast still be happening? Ta da! <laughs> this is it. Oh right. Okay. I mean, obviously, we need people to subscribe to us on iTunes in order to keep this going. I got a text from my sister saying she'd been into WH Smith and she could see no stickers really? in her local one. We need to name and shame the branches. I went into my local branch and they didn't have the stickers either. Oh, I had a good mind to have a few words. Uh, anyway, but, but we have we have announced, and if you follow us on Twitter, you'll know that we have a page on the WH Smith website with our recent choices, and there are discounts there. Uh, as well. But anyway, and I'm sure it's only a matter of time <laughs> before they get their arse in gear get, and their sticker on the books. Quite right. Or else we will be coming round and having words with the management. Uh, yes. A lot of people interested in whether we're going to do merchandise. Oh, by the uh, way, just, yes? did, um, Dermot's 
Uh, Demo Leary, who was on uh, just a couple of days ago, Toto the Ninja Cat is £5.24. Only £5.24. As, as one of the discounts. And Beetle the Bard is £16.25. That's not bad, actually. That's so a really big book. Just mentioning that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Books of the Year merchandise, because when you and I have done pictures in the past, I mean, I'm wearing a grey hoodie, but you're wearing your sort of black top. It's blue, and we've actually. had, yeah. And um, and people, uh, and we've had sort of superimposed onto our tops the Books of the Year icon. Who does that? Uh, the, the people with access to Photoshop, okay. who uh, I obviously don't have. And um, people are asking whether they can buy uh, Books of the Year merchandise. Uh, Janet Halliburton, how do we go about winning or donating to whatever for the logo shirt, please? I think that's a pretty good idea. Any chance of uh, of merchandise which we could sell at astonishing? Yes. Oh dear. Oh well. Make your own. You could always. <laughs> yes. Could make always your make own, then sell it to us. Because that's what happens on the film show, the Entertainment Film Show. Because we're not allowed to to do merchandise because it's the BBC. Everyone else does them for us. So there are Entertainment. Uh, t-shirts and sweatshirts and mugs and everything. Really? Yeah, we don't. And they're making money, and you're not. Sounds wrong. Race. Um. On the subject of the Heather Morris show, David Hunt says, just caught up with the Heather Morris Q&A on Books of the Year podcast. I love her book, but I must find a wonky donkey book so yeah. I can enjoy the illustrations. Yes, uh, Joanne also uh, was compelled to buy uh, Heather's book after listening to the podcast, although she talked very fast and had to listen really quickly. Mrs. S says, a beautiful testament to a horrific part of our history and Barbara Brewis, a truly disturbing, heartbreaking and amazing book. And Angie Kusky rhymes with Husky, uh, says, amazing book and brilliant interview with Heather. As for the Q&A with Heather, uh, Matt's hysterics at the uh, <laughs> at the wonky donkey. We all know the word that I'm, I'm brushing over here. I'm not going to say that word, but if you listen to that podcast, you'll know what the word was. Uh, set me off giggling like a loon too. But seriously, the, this book is a must-read. Thank you once again, guys, for the fab podcast. What's interesting, she's written the rude version of the word and put an asterisk in it. <laughs> yes, but there's no. She hasn't taken out any letter <laughs> at all, which is uh, which is crazy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and uh, Heather's book was Tattooist of Auschwitz, by the course, way, course, not Wonky Donkey. No. Um, Simon Cuddy, and obviously the whole point of the podcast is you can get everything. Uh, they're all available. You can uh, you can check our back catalogue. Simon Carty, keep up the good work. It's great listening to you both when I'm travelling around the world. Ben McIntyre has just sold two books on the back of your show. And we'd like a cut, please, Ben. That'd be nice. Uh, Pip Tolster says, this was such a great episode. Great to hear Chris Riddell and Radio Leary. So, um... I've just forgotten his first That's name. That's Dermot. Dermot O'Leary, well done. Uh, talking about <laughs> illustrations. <laughs> Do you mean T- the world-famous... Yes, your man off the X Factor. That yeah. guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm enjoying these podcasts with you and Matt Williams. Whatever his Whoever name that is. is. Uh, Chris Hughes in Manchester. I know from your most recent excellent podcast that Anthony will Anthony Horowitz will be joining you soon, and I wonder whether it'd be possible for you to ask him a question. I have greatly enjoyed his novels based on established literary creations like James Bond and Sherlock Holmes. Would he like to, or is he planning, to write books revisiting any other characters from the past? Uh, he will. He will well, I think we'll kind of address yes, that. Yes, we will. We? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My. <laughs> Go on. I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just pluck, pluck an idea out of the ether, well, there, Simon. Yeah. I was just oh. thinking as I was yeah. walking in today of Where C.S. You... Lewis. Wait, oh, C.S. Lewis. What did he write again? Oh, I wonder. He might be going. There. <laughs> anyway, Chris, is still loving the podcasts. 
and passing on the word to everyone who'll listen and even those who don't. Chris, thank you. Quite right, yeah. Uh, Karina Buck, I downloaded Spotify and Acast, the, the latter solely for Books of the Year, and I haven't looked back, so thank you. It's business as usual at this end. Indeed. And Sarah Drinks Too Much says, after five minutes listening to the Books of the Year podcast, my eight-year-old offers his considered opinion. It's great to hear Matt Williams again, but these confessions are terrible. Hashtag five-star review. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that's very nice of you to get in touch. Thank you very much indeed. And you can tweet us at Books of the Year. Email uh, Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Stand by. Our Q&A comes next. Question number one. Anthony, do you want to go first? The last book you really, really enjoyed. Well, I've just been sent and I've just read a book by John Lanchester called The Wall. It's a bit of a cheek because it's not published until March of next year, but it's a fantastic novel about Britain in a sort of a, a, dy- a dystopian future when a war has built, been built all the way around the coast and it's about people who defend that war. Wow, that sounds great. Marcus? <laughs> Hard to follow that. I finally got to Into Thin Air by John Krakauer. Uh, about that, you know, the tragic Everest mission. Oh, yeah. And I just ate it up. And, it's a fantastic uh, book. I've read it. It's what happens when you, you you leave it a decade too late to read something and then you just read it pretty much all in one go and it was amazing. So, Anthony, a lot of your books will be read to kids. Is there a book that you remember being read to you when you were a child? No. My mother didn't read books to me, but she did tell me the plots of horror films. So the <laughs> answer to your question is Dracula, oh, yeah. Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Fly. <laughs> this is me, age seven, with mummy telling me all my horror stories. Superb. <laughs> Marcus? Wow. I'm the same. I don't remember being read to. I don't think my parents ever did. And... Uh, but they did, we just did have hundreds and hundreds of books and it was just up to us. And I was the fourth of four kids too and I think they'd had enough by then, so it was up to me. Uh, whose books do you own the most of, Anthony? That's a tricky question, you know, because how, how do you count them? I mean, I looked on my shelves. The answer is either Dickens, Trollope or Thackeray because I've got all of their books left to me by my father. And I think Trollope probably was the most prolific of the three, so that'll be the answer to your question. Marcus? Dr. Seuss, no doubt. Oh, good and man. Uh, and uh, and probably John Irving, and uh, just although much less John Irving's than Dr. Seuss, but the John Irving ones are a lot longer. And uh, I think I just went through a phase where that was just what I wanted to read, and I love those. Especially, you know, you start on the world according to Garp, and you go, these were just whole madcap, amazing, exhilarating, exhausting novels that you just totally inhabit. And, that's what I love. That's a great book, World According to Garp. I love that one. Yeah, uh, sharp-eared listeners will have heard the coffees being delivered. Yeah, coffees arrived halfway uh, through which, there. Which is good. Uh, Anthony, how long do you give a book before you... I mean, obviously, you would finish most books, but how long would you give it before you say, that's it? I do finish most books, but as a writer for young people, I always say that you shouldn't force yourself to continue reading a book which you're not enjoying. How long do I give myself? It depends on the book. I mean, I can go halfway, even three-quarters of the way, and finally, finally decide I've had enough. But by and large, I will try to get to the end. Mark. Yeah, I'm the same. Try to be disciplined, but I feel like there's the 40-page mark, 60-page, yeah. well, 40, 60, and 80, and then by by then you've sort of worked out how hard it's going to be, but I still try to I, t- I tell people it's like 50, but in truth, if you've not got me within 10 pages, then it's not going to happen. I think James Joyce Ulysses was about page eight, actually, so. <laughs> <laughs> I always tried to have a 100-page rule because some I remember yeah. reading The Perfect Storm and finding it quite tough to get into then it became a huge sensation so I went back to it and it like kicked off on page 99 <laughs> you know, so I'd stopped just slightly too early um, reading habits where and when do you read the most Anthony where Crete 
Crete. When, yes, the island of Crete where I spend the summer. And when, between the months of about June when I arrive and <laughs> September when I leave. <laughs> So you can't that's, read other than during that no, no, time. Course, no, the question was, <laughs> oh, where, do you where, most, where, where do I most read? And that, because I have four months away and no telephones and no television and no social gatherings particularly, I can read immersively. Kitchen table for me uh, in the morning and, and public transport, but the kitchen table is great because you've got kids and dogs and everything going on. And it does remind you in the end of that that line in The Catcher in the Rye when... Ackley, that really annoying kids keep saying to Holden, how's that book you're reading? And he says, well, this sentence I'm on is great. And, uh, <laughs> because uh, he's, he's read it that many times because of all the interruptions. But I kind of like the chaos of, of that as well, and books are a part of that. Uh, Anthony, you mentioned you were looking at your bookshelf before you came out. Uh, is there any order to that bookshelf? Is there, are they grouped together or, or is it just higgledy-piggledy? They're grouped together by author, therefore I have complete oh. libraries of Dickens and Thackeray. But then I've bought complete sets as well. My Dickens is a lovely nonsuch nun 1946 edition, and it would be sort of crazy to split it up because they're made to be together. That said, my books are, I have about, I guess, two or 3,000 books in my house, and there's no, I would mistrust anybody who sort of, for example, had their books alphabetically on the shelf or by year <laughs> or whatever. So there is a sort of a higgledy-piggledyness to them as well. Funny thing is, I know where every single book is. If you ask me now to go to my house and pull out one book, I could go straight to it. Wow, that's impressive. Marcus? Well, mine are alphabetically collated by year. Oh, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> oh, I had to throw that in. Um, I think there's a there's an element of I think even what um, Anthony's talking about chaos and control. So in the room where I actually work, they're everywhere and uh, and out of order just as they go on the shelf. But then just in the general room in the house where the most books are, they are sort of ordered a bit more fiction and nonfiction mostly. And you try to get them in a in alphabetical order, but it never works. Do you keep your own books, Mark? Because you have your own books in lots and lots of languages. And what do you do with them? Well, yeah, I've, most of them are just, I don't know, we've moved so many times in the last couple of years that they're just in boxes at the moment. And uh, and so they're just, they're a bit all over the place too. And I just try to give them away. But what are you going to do with 16 copies of the Finnish version? Because you don't, you can't give them to well, anyone. Or your Finnish Exactly. So, uh, um, but you know, you, you can't complain about those things because someone will really smack you in the head and you deserve it. <laughs> hey, what's the first book you bought with your own money, Anthony? I can remember it vividly. It was Dr. No. Uh, I'd been to see the movie. I was eight years old or nine years old, and I was blown away by Sean Connery and Ursula Andress. And so I went out, and with my pocket money, I bought Dr. No. Quite prophetic. Well, it certainly was going to influence my life, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. That's brilliant. I'm, I'm pretty sure mine was the magic finger. And I just remember going in there. Dull. Is that rolled up? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And... Uh, and just picking, and then I, it, to, at the time, it seemed like quite an effort. And then I, I looked at it a couple of years ago, and it was just almost like a pamphlet. And I, you know, I thought, geez, I might not have been so as proud of that achievement at the time that I thought. Is is there a book you've overused to try to impress someone? Only one. I don't think books should be used to impress people. You know, guess what? You know, guess what I'm reading, or guess what I've read. But there was one book, The Cane Mutiny by Herman Woke, Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist, and I used that book to impress Herman Woke because I went to see him <laughs> to try and get permission from him to adapt it for television. And my knowledge of the book and my love of the book had to ah. come through in the meeting, and I had to impress upon him that I was going to treat <laughs> this, this book very, bag? very carefully oh. and with great love. And he did give me permission, and I'm writing it now. There you go. It says a story with a happy ending. 
Nice. Don't, don't know if I've ever tried to impress anyone, but I may, may have tried to depress people by giving them my book, <laughs> uh, and especially especially family members. But then you get to a situation where you've got a like I know my brother hasn't read any of my books, and I kind of love that. And uh, you know, and people always say he hasn't read any of your books, and I go, well, I I don't go and look at every house he paints. And uh, so, I, you know, so impressing, I don't know, I just feel like I love the job. And usually when I give people a book, uh, the first thing I say is, but you don't have to read it. <laughs> so uh, I've never tried to impress anyone with any kind of reading prowess because I've never, I know I c- couldn't possibly pull it off. Is there a book you would love to step inside of where the world that's been created has been so wonderful? Because some people are great at creating worlds so you still will never want to be a part of it. There is, and I have, is the answer to that one, because the answer is Sherlock Holmes, a sign of four, how of the Baskervilles, any of them. And I've stepped inside them by writing continued continuation novels, you know, in the world of Sherlock Holmes, which involves the pleasure of doing those books, is living inside there, being a guest at 221B Baker Street in the company of the two greatest friends in literature. So those are the books that I most wanted to enter. But that was true long before I became a writer, when I read those books in my late teens. I wanted to be in that world. Mm. I think for me most recently or in the last decade, probably all the pretty horses, Cormac McCarthy, but with the proviso that I could step out of that yeah, world any time I wanted to as well. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is a, you know, it's a bit frightening at times, but just that world just felt so, you could tell how much he loved writing it and being there when he was writing it. And I would have, I almost would have loved to be in the room while he was writing it as well. So both, not only the world of the book, but the world of the writer writing that book. Is, is there an ending to a book that you'd like to change, Anthony? Yes, when you asked me this question, I knew the answer immediately. It's Captain Corelli's Mandolin by Louis de Bernier, which is a wonderful book. I, I love it to bits. But for some reason, he imposes an unhappy ending on it. Uh, after all the things that the hero and, the, and, the, and the, the love interest have been through, the girl have been through, you think they're going to come together and through a complete fluke. They don't. And I wanted to say to him, actually, I did say to him when I met him, why did you do that? Why couldn't you just let them meet, be happy, and they live happily ever after? I'd rewrite it. How did that conversation go? He wasn't too amused. (laughs) (laughs) I loved your book, but the ending was terrible. Um, I I I actually don't. I I, I just feel like, um, you know, things do happen for a reason. Choices are made for a reason, I think. Ask most writers, and I think that's how you write your next book to atone for the sins of the last one. And uh, and so endings of books, I sort of feel like maybe it, it was just destined to be like that for a reason. And so I think it's better left unthought of. It's interesting when I work in TV. I mean, there is always a temptation these days to test your work on an audience, and if they don't like the ending, to rewrite it. So I agree with you. In a sense. All endings are somehow built into the book and you can't really change them. They have a sort of a, a certainty. But this one, in the, the, the case I, I mentioned, was just so quirky and so sort of, I just couldn't quite get why, why it had to happen that way. And uh, Louis was on one of our earlier podcasts. If, we, if we'd known, we could have brought that up and see if he's mellowed. <laughs> what about the ending? <laughs> his yeah. uh, is there a book that you would like to write the sequel to? You've done some of these anyway. I haven't really done well, sequels. Well, sequel, prequels. Exactly. I mean, uh, Forever and a Day is a prequel to Bond and, and Trigger Mortis sort of sits in the middle of a canon. Um, I quite like to possibly go back to Narnia is a thought. They are actually going to do them now for television, I notice, uh, which is interesting. And I've often thought that for a modern 
audience, to go back to Narnia with modern kids might be quite interesting to show them the delights of that world. So that would be tempting. I'm never going to do another continuation novel. So if any publisher is listening, the answer is no. It was just sort of an answer to a question. But that, that would be interesting to you. Mm. I'm glad your motivation was delight. I think my answer is there's a great Australian, really short novel called Wake in Fright. Uh, it's about this teacher who all he wants to do is get home to the city uh, for his Christmas, you know, for his school holiday break, and he just can't ever quite get there. And it's just a descent into this nightmarish country town of a world. And uh, and then he ends up back at the school where he's working in the outback. And to write the sequel of that would be his second year of hell. <laughs> it has a kind of appeal. <laughs> yeah, uh, second but, year of hell. But only he could do it. Brilliant. Uh, and finally, is there a book that you wish you'd written for whatever reason? Broadly speaking, no, because I'm happy with the books that I have written. But if you want me just to give you two titles to think of, one in deference to our guest, I wouldn't have said no to have written The Book Thief. Uh, to write a book mm. that is so defining of a year and of a period would be would be quite exciting. If not that, the, the piece of writing that I've always envied the most, curiously, is Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. It's a mm. play, not a book, but I would adore to write a whodunit on the stage that works as brilliantly as that. Wow. Thanks, Anthony, for being so nice. Um, <laughs> it's unusual. <laughs> um, it's, Welcome uh, to England, Mark. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And uh, I think for me, the amazing adventures of Cavalier and Clay, Michael Shaban, who uh, that's a guy you just imagine gets up, scratches his backside and walks over to his desk and writes something brilliant without even trying, worrying or anything. But I'm sure that's not how it happens. But there's a line in that book where he, he talks about a, an ocean liner coming into New York Harbour and he describes it as the Rotterdam came into New York Harbour like a mountain wearing a dinner jacket. <laughs> and uh, and you go, I wish I'd written that. You know, and that's a line I, I wish I'd written in a book I wish I'd written. So thanks to Marcus and thanks to Anthony. You can hear the full interview and them reading from their books uh, in just a few days' time with the, uh, with the main show. Uh, before we finish, we should say congratulations to the splendid and always brilliant Edith Bowman. Her wonderful soundtracking podcast won the Best Specialist Music Programme Award at the Radio Academy Awards last week, beating all the proper radio shows. So big up for the podcast massive, particularly if it's led by Edith Bowman, who is always great company and incredibly well-informed on all these matters. I mean, you look at the names of guests that she's had on there, like Ron Howard, uh, Armando Iannucci, Paddy Considine. I, I've listened to that one. I love Paddy Considine. Um, so, yeah, absolutely spot on. Yeah, and Bradley Cooper on a recent one as well, yeah. who not only directed Star is Born, but actually is a great rock star you know mm. it's quite clear that he's the real deal uh, in there so check out soundtracking uh, with edith bowman and then when we speak again in a few days time you'll know what we're talking about anyway thank you very much Dean, for listening uh, we'll be back with our full show with marcus zuzak and anthony horowitz in a few days 